Uh, today's reading is from Luke 2, verses 8 to 20. You can find the passage in your bulletins or in your Bible or on your phone. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is God's word. Thanks for leading us in prayer and, uh, and scripture reading, Ashley. Uh, we are beginning for, you know, it's a short sort of Advent series that we're starting uh, this morning. There's no real title to the series. Um, we're going to look at this story a few times. So we're going to look at it, well, we're going to look at it this week and next week at least. I know that much. Um, the story of the shepherds meeting the angels and then making their way to uh, the stable where they met Jesus the Messiah. Just a reminder that there is in your bulletin an outline and also my phone number is in there if you want to text questions. If we have time at the end, we'll, uh, we'll take those up, those questions up um, that you may have. So let's start here. Um, servant is in the kitchen of his master's house and he's putting together another meal that he's going to bring up to his master, and he's been doing this now for about three weeks. Every time he goes upstairs to his master's room, he walks in there and he notices that the food has been basically untouched, and his master barely even notices that he's there. Doesn't say two words to him, he just goes in, takes the plate, goes out. And this goes on for about three weeks. So this, this week he walks up the stairs, and he hears a commotion in his master's room and he opens the door and he looks in and his master is sitting there. He turns to him with tears streaming down his face and he says, I think I did see heaven before me and the great God himself. And he is weeping uncontrollably. Anybody have a guess as to who I'm talking about? Handel. Joseph Handel from Handel's Messiah. You know what I'm talking about? The story is that this man was called and, and invited to write a sacred piece of music. He had set 
a year's worth of time before him so that he could write this sacred piece of music about the coming of Jesus Christ, basically the whole biblical story. And he locked himself in his room and he began work on this thing and in 24 days he completed what became known as the most magnificent piece of sacred music ever completed in all of civilized history. And he did it in 24 days. And that moment when he said to his servant, I think I did see heaven before me and the great God himself, he had just completed the famous hallelujah chorus. You know the hallelujah chorus? Hallelujah, hallelujah. You really don't want me to keep going. But it was 1741. It was supposed to take him a year. Here's the question. What precipitated such a creative output? What caused Handel to weep for joy as he completed this hallelujah chorus and the rest of the incredible uh, Messiah oratorio? Well, it was the same thing that the shepherds experienced when they were out watching their flocks, just doing their shepherd thing out in the field, and then the skies lit up with this angel choir in front of them. In verse 20 of our text, it says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. These shepherds had this outburst of praise, of glory, of, of, of just overflowing with a sense of wonder at who God is and what God has done. They had experienced the surpassing beauty of the divine. In verse 9, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shot around them. Glory. Beauty. Majesty. Exquisiteness. Attractiveness. They saw it, and... And not only did they see it with their own eyes and have a visual experience of this, they also also heard it with their ears. In verses 10 and 11 it says, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So they had this experience of this glory. They had this this word called the gospel to them. that The the Savior had been born, the long-awaited King, the Messiah that they had waited forever and ever and ever, uh, had finally been announced that He was coming, and they were transformed by the news. They were changed by the message. In verse 17 and 18, it says that when they had seen Him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds became heralds themselves. They became evangelists, I guess you could say. They were transformed by this astounding experience of beauty that they had. What I want to do with you this morning is take a few minutes to talk about beauty. Those those qualities that exist in a thing or in a person, that please us and and that we find attractive. They have an effect on us. They 
they change us. Anybody who's been in a relationship with someone that they find beautiful, and I don't just mean physically beautiful, physically attractive, but I mean if, you are, if you're married and you're in a good marriage anyway, that person has a whole bunch of qualities that you find attractive, and, and the effect of their attractive qualities on you is that they, they change you. They make you aspire to something greater. They make you want to be better than who you are. I want to talk to you about beauty. I want to talk to you about how we long for beauty, why we long for beauty, and how we can unite with beauty. Is that what I want to talk to you about? Let me just double check. Yes. That we long for beauty, why we long for beauty, and how we can unite with beauty, those three things. First of all, the fact, the fact that we long for beauty, we do long for beauty. Cultural anthropologists and uh, evolutionary biologists, these kind of people who study hit the history of humankind and, and cultures and that kind of stuff, they have long said that this need for beauty that human beings have this, what you could call aesthetic impulse, that is this, this desire to see beautiful things, to create beautiful things, is actually a great mystery to them. They're not sure why we have that, where that comes from. Every tribe in civilized history has some form of artistic craftsmanship that goes beyond utility, meaning uh, every tribe in civilized history, for some reason, wants to create artifacts that are just aesthetically pleasing. They look good, but they're not actually useful for much of, of anything. And so, we're the only creature, uh, anthropologists and evolutionary biologists will tell you that, that human beings, we're, the, we're actually the only creature that has a desire for things like art and, and music and poetry and sculpture and paintings and, and all that kind of stuff. Primitive man decorated his caves with pictures. Bears don't. Chimpanzees don't hang up pictures in their trees. Why? What is that? They're not actually sure why. And it, it's a, it is a, a real conundrum because particularly for the evolutionary biologists who would say, look, everything that we do is rooted in our impulse to survive, right? Pass on our genetic code, survival of the human species, all that kind of stuff. But this creation of art doesn't seem to actually serve any kind of purpose in that regard. And we, but we have this creative streak. Like, you, like even those of us who are, okay, like if you ever saw me draw, don't ever play Pictionary with me. You will lose because I, have, I can't draw. But I still love beauty. I still want to create beauty. Some of us want to make nice landscapes in our backyard. We even decorate the inside of our houses. Why don't we just leave the bear's wall and have some ratty old couch in the corner? Because we want it to be beautiful. We have this creative streak in us. And it's a mysterious, a mystery, it's a mystery, it's mysterious as to why that exists within us. But it, it's more than that. It's not just that we want to create beauty. In fact, we want to experience beauty as well. Many people, some of you people, including myself, you spend a lot of money every year to go to beautiful places, maybe on vacation. You know, for some, it's... Uh, 
Algonquin Park. For others, it's an exotic location. For some of us, it's just a really nice beach in the Caribbean. Regardless, we, we like to be in beautiful places to gaze upon the beauty. You go to the Grand Canyon, which, which is just really a big ditch, if you think about it, and you, you stare at it with awe and wonder. Or you go to the Rocky Mountains, and you, you go to the Bay of Fundy, and you just drink it in. You want to experience this beauty. And some people like to go to art galleries. They go to the AGO and they, they look at beautiful paintings and photos, etc. Or people go to concerts to listen to beautiful music. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, classical music. Some people like to do that, orchestras. But, but you know, a really good modern band that, that, that you find pleasing. What about sports? Sports is actually not just about competition. We go to sporting events because we want to experience greatness. When you see an incredible athlete accomplish their goal and do the thing that they do, it's strangely pleasing to you, even though you're just, you're just a, 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 an observer. We long to behold, we long to experience beauty because we are moved by glimpses of it in a strange way. We, another way of putting it is to say that we yearn for a vision of glory. Why? What's up with that? Leonard Bernstein, who was a famous composer and conductor, probably more famous conductor than composer, he conducted the New York City Philharmonic for many, many years. He said once in an interview, he was speaking about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, um, for those of you who don't know it, that's the da 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 Is that one? Well, I mean, if I mention Beethoven's fifth and you have no clue, like, I'm, you're going to spend the whole sermon, like, trying to Google it and listen to it or something. So listen to what he says. Beethoven leaves us, this is on the front of your bulletin, by the way. Beethoven leaves us with the feeling that something is right in the world. That something checks throughout. Something that follows its own laws consistently. Something we can trust. Something that will never let us down. Here's what Bernstein is saying. And Bernstein, by the way, was an atheist. Well, probably an agnostic, but he was not a believer, okay? And what he's saying is that beauty, when we experience beauty, that, that beauty actually points beyond itself to a reality beyond itself, behind it. Human beings are always reaching for something that is true, something that is sure, something that is pure, that is something that is absolute. And beauty is a way that we are reaching toward it because every time we experience something truly beautiful, we grasp at that truth, but we can never hold on to it. Because there's, it's as though there is an ultimate beauty behind the beautiful things that we experience that is out there but somehow just out of our reach. Now, I know this sounds vague and weird to some of you. Some of you get what I'm saying. Like, I know that there's different personalities in the room, right? So I'm an artsy-fartsy personality, actually. I know I don't look like it, but I, I, I am. So this is the kind of stuff that I groove to. Um, some of you maybe are more... And no offense to engineers, but you're more concrete and more logical and stuff like that. So maybe you're looking at me going, what is this guy talking about? Let me root this in the Bible. 
in Genesis chapter 1, and we were just in Genesis recently, so I don't have to spend too, time on, too much time on this. But in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created this entire universe good. And once he had created everything, including human beings, as the pinnacle of that creation, he said that everything was very good. Another way of translating that word is beautiful. God created everything with a, with a pure goodness and beauty in it. Everything was perfect. And we were at the center of that perfectly created universe. As God's image bearers who reflected his glory and his majesty beautifully, okay, so that we, we had that beauty in us, but it was a beauty that reflected the beauty and glory of God, right? The ultimate truth beyond us. We were that perfect image of God's glory and then we read in Genesis 3 of course that we lost that when Adam and Eve they ate of the fruit and they discovered they were naked what they realized what they had lost was this glory this beauty they were ashamed of themselves and so what did they do they covered themselves up with the fig leaves right and now, every single human being, when we grow up, despite everything, the best, the best intentions of the best parents, some of us have had very good parents who were extremely affirming as we were growing up, we still think deep down in our soul somewhere that there's something wrong with us. We're not beautiful. There's a stain on us. There's a stain inside us, a blemish. That's why the Bible talks about our sinfulness very often in that kind of language, using this language of, of stain or blemish. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah says, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Scarlet meaning the, the stain of blood. In Jeremiah chapter 2, he talks about the stain of our guilt. Psalm 51, remember David? After his sin with Bathsheba, what does he want? He asks God, please cleanse me from my sin. And maybe in one of the most profound passages on this subject in the New Testament, Paul, when he's talking about marriage, of all places where he's talking about marriage, he says this incredible thing in Ephesians chapter 5. He says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave him up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Deep down inside of us, we long for this beauty because we know that we don't have it. Let me just give one illustration. I mean, the, the number of illustrations I could choose are, are endless, but let me just give you one. Pornography. People think that pornography is basically about sex. It's the selling of sex. But why is pornography so effective? Why is it so attractive to men? Is it simply because we are wired visually and, and an attractive looking woman uh, is kind of like get it, gets their hooks in us? It's, it's not just about sex. See, 
it's a twisting of this deep down human longing to unite with beauty. Men will admit this when they're, when they're being very open and honest and vulnerable. They'll admit that they don't feel desirable. Even married men. This is why, for those of you men who struggle with this kind of issue and you think, well, if I could ever get married and, you know, then I can have an outlet for my desires and this will all go away. Nah, nah, not going to happen. Because the problem isn't simply because you have a libido that's not getting the opportunity to express itself. The problem is, is that deep down we have this longing to unite with beauty because we know that we are not ultimately beautiful. So we have a desire, we know we're not desirable. And, and in pornography, men can kind of escape to a world where they can feel that they are desirable, that they are attractive, that they are absolutely irresistible. That's the real hook behind the physical hook in pornography. It's disordered love. We just sang this beautiful song. What's it called again? Rest in You. Basically, it's, it's, it's an explanation or it's an expression of the theology of a theologian by the name of St. Augustine. And St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until we find rest in God. Because, you see, we have a deep and profound desire. We have all kinds of deep and profound desires. And those deep and profound desires, because of sin, get disordered. They get screwed up. They get placed in the wrong situation or, or in the wrong level of hierarchy in our lives. So, for example, I have a desire to be healthy but I also have a desire to eat a lot of greasy food. These are conflicting desires. And unfortunately, my desire to eat greasy food is often outstrips my desire to be healthy. And so my, or, my loves are disordered, and so I go to the doctor. This has not happened yet, thank the Lord. But you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you keep eating that dis greasy food, and you will no longer remain healthy, and you're going to have heart problems. You're going to have high cholesterol and all that kind of stuff because your loves are disordered. Well, the greatest desire that human beings have is the desire to love and be loved. That's our deepest desire. And of course, it is also the most grotesquely deformed desire as evidenced in a thing like pornography addiction. So, we long for beauty. We were made, in fact, to unite with beauty. Because of sin... We're pursuing that union with beauty in all kinds of screwed up ways, in all kinds of wrong ways. How do we unite with beauty then? How do we, how do we unite with beauty the long way, the wrong, sorry, the right way, this thing that we so want so, so deeply? Well, the, the Bible says that God is the source of all beauty. And so it's through reconciling with him that we can experience true beauty and we can be beautiful ourselves. Look how this happens with the shepherds, okay? What, what glory do they actually see? You know, when it says in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
Whose glory did they experience? It wasn't the glory of the angels. It was the glory of the Lord. And this is interesting because most of us think of angels as very glorious beings, right? If you picture an angel, what do you think? What do you picture? You picture probably, uh, you know, this, this figure in robes of white that kind of glows brightly, right? Maybe they're blonde-haired and blue-eyed. For some of us, maybe they're dark-haired, whatever. But they're, they're, they're ravishingly beautiful, But nowhere in the Bible are angels actually described as glorious. They always only reflect the glory of the Lord. They they shine His glory brightly. The Bible always describes it not as, as the glory of angels, but as the glory of the Lord that shone around them. That's what the shepherds saw. They saw God's glory, and they they were affected by it, like Beethoven's music. The angels pointed to a glory beyond them, to the glory of God. It wasn't their own. But here's the problem. What does it say? It says, and they were terrified. Their initial experience of the glory and beauty and majesty of God, it actually terrified them. It it wasn't like they were enraptured when they first saw it they were freaking out and scared out of their mind they saw it as intimidating they saw it as threatening and this is what beauty always does right i was reading when i was researching this i you know i was kind of googling around and uh, i found a whole bunch of articles um on the don't hate me because i'm beautiful issue have you guys ever you guys know that that don't hate me because i'm beautiful so there was a spokeswoman for, I think it was Revlon, uh, who was a supermodel, and the tagline was, don't hate me because I'm beautiful, because a lot of studies actually have demonstrated that physically attractive women are found to be very, very intimidating to, to other people, uh, simply because of their beauty. So, uh, other women think negatively about them immediately, but they're strangely attracted to them because we all want to hang out with the good-looking people, but we're threatened by the good-looking people because they make us feel less good-looking. Like those of you who are friends of Jessica, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> so there's this weird dynamic at play when we experience great beauty. She is so beet red, poor girl. <laughs> Being married to me is tough. So, you, you have this strange dynamic at play where when you experience real beauty, real greatness, real glory, you're strangely attracted to it, but you're also repulsed and, and a bit intimidated by it. And, and in a sense, you, you're, you, uh, you, you don't like it. And so that was the, the place that these poor shepherds found themselves in. But later, as we keep reading, we discover that the shepherds no longer fear the beauty. Instead, they're relishing their, the beauty and they're inviting others into the beauty. They, they're telling anybody they can what they've seen and what they've heard and they're, they're inviting them to, to share in it. Just like Handel, 1,700 years later, he, he turns to his servant and he's like, it's like I saw heaven itself open and the great God himself before me. How in the world did they go from one to the other? The answer is verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
God's favor on humanity. This is the first announcement of the gospel. That God, who made us, who created us, delights in us. That he, he finds us beautiful, not ugly, not stained. It was the welcome of God into his presence that overwhelmed the shepherd's fear. The fact that God who knew them from the bottom, just like you and me, knows us from the bottom, knows the anger, the pettiness, the hard-heartedness, the laxity, the laziness, the self-centeredness. He knows deep into every nook and cranny of my heart and your heart. And he looks at you and knows all that, but yet at the same time delights in you and cherishes you as his child. That you could be reunited with him, with the ultimate beauty, and be found beautiful by one so beautiful. How awesome would it be for my, my favorite soccer player in the world, Lionel Messi, to come to me and say, man, you got some mad soccer skills. I don't. But to hear him say, I did. You see, to have the favor of the great one, to be called beautiful by someone so beautiful, that's the ultimate dream. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. Again, it's on the front of your bulletin so that you can cut it out and put it on your fridge later. In the end, that face, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we will stand before him. We shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But it is so. It's only possible through Christ, friends. Because he is the beautiful one. He's the glorious one, you see. But as we read in Scripture, the glorious one, the beautiful one, gave it all up for us. In Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, it says, He, that is Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. 
He was despised. It wasn't just that Jesus wasn't allowed to be part of the cool crowd. The king of the universe emptied himself of his glory. He came into this world to be with us. And every time he approached any single one of us, we turned our back on him. We said, get away from me. I can't even look at you. Jesus lost that glory on the cross. He became one who we would spit upon because we, were, we so despised him. That's what he took so that we could be beautiful in the sight of God. Bearing our sin on the tree. So that our stain, our blemish could be removed so we could be beautiful to God. Do you see that beauty in Jesus? Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Not until you see him as beautiful and see yourself as beautiful to him will you be free from this deep longing that you're trying to find fulfillment in elsewhere in your own looks in having the right woman on your arm in pornography or chasing an exotic destination here or there or going to these concerts or plays or whatever you can be permanently united to true beauty in Jesus Christ and when you do you don't just become beautiful to God. This is the weird thing. This is, the, this is like the cherry on top. You become beautiful to the world too. Because you become a different kind of person that is not so needy all the time. Not so needy all the time where the world is constantly pushing on you to measure up and to fit in and to look a certain way and to be a certain way and to dress a certain way and have a certain kind of lifestyle. I, I, one of my favorite sitcoms for a long time is a, a show called Parks and Recreation. Anybody know Parks and Rec? And there's a guy on that show, Tom Haverford. And he's this little guy. He's a man boy, okay? Or a boy man. I don't know which way you're supposed to put it. But this guy is constantly, throughout this the series, he's constantly chasing the latest bling and the latest cool uh, article of clothing and trying to make a mogul of himself. And he's just on this treadmill, constantly chasing, 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 until, until he meets this woman. Lucy. And Lucy likes this skinny little runty man boy, just as he is. And he loses everything. I'm blowing the show for those of you who want to watch it, but <laughs> he loses everything at one point, but he survives because she sits him down and she says, who cares about all that? You still have me. You know, you and I, we can be beautiful to the world because whether 
your church plant flourishes or dies or whether your business takes off or doesn't or whether you get the job you've been dying for or not or whether that guy or that girl will finally date you or not, you can have, take it or leave it, but you will still be beautiful to the one that really matters. And the world can, will find that beautiful too. The Apostle Peter, he's writing to the, the early church and he says this, where did all my stuff go? Did you guys see what I did? Oh, there we go. He's, he says this, he says, live such good lives, and what he means by good is beautiful, live such beautiful lives among the pagans that they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. An old preacher said, if we can show people first that Christianity is beautiful, then they may be willing to consider if it is true and good. You are beautiful to the one that really matters. Let the world see it. Let's pray. Father, we long to be beautiful, but in Christ we are utterly beautiful. Sink that truth deep in our hearts, Father, so that we can rest in it and not chase after the approval and the, the accolades of the world in which we live. But rather, may we show his beauty to this world. In his name we pray, amen.